Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined in person by my two US-based teammates and colleagues who are over in London visiting for the week. So we've got Andrew Tyler, who is head of our US market intelligence team. And then we have John Schlegel, who is head of our global positioning intelligence team. And today, together, we plan to really dive into Andrew and John's home territory, so U.S. markets, and address key opportunities and risks for U.S. equities at this stage. So, Drew, John, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for having us. It's great to be here. So, before we dive into markets then, Drew, John, can I ask how your trip has been so far? You've been in London for a week now. You've seen a lot of investors. What's your take? For me, it's been fantastic. Just being able to kind of put faces to names, especially kind of uh, having joined the firm right before COVID started and finally getting across to meet everybody. It's really been nice. Brilliant. Yeah, it's great being with uh, the team and with clients. I think it's always great to hear different views. But so far, it's not been too surprising for some of the views. So we'll get to that in a bit, I think. Yeah, definitely. So I guess to set the scene then, the US S&P 500 has gained 7% this year, and it's gained 15% from lows in October last year. And the NASDAQ has rallied even harder than that. So on the face of it, the stock markets look to be reflecting a rosier outlook for earnings and for future growth potential than was the case, say, six to nine months ago. And yet, from many, many of my client conversations, at least, the mood has seemed far more subdued, to say the least. There are risks and concerns really abound over the debt ceiling in the near term and over a possible upcoming recession in the medium term. So, Drew, let's start with you. How would you characterise recent investor conversations? They have been mostly bearish, but I think that investors are starting to have a little bit of fatigue with the bearish view, simply because it hasn't played out as expected. Very interesting. Thank you. So in contrast to that, really, the markets, as I said, they've rallied significantly in the US and globally, in fact, since October last year. So, Drew, how would you explain that? What do you think the drivers of that market strength have been? So it really comes down to me is first is going to be the disinflationary trend. And then second is going to be the strength in the health of the consumer, which has come across as being far more stable and far more resilient than markets had anticipated when we enter this year. Brilliant. Thank you. So shall we take each of those in turn then? So starting with the disinflationary trend, how would you characterize that? Yes. So inflation really peaked in June of last year, about 9%. And the most recent print was 4.9%. And I think from here, really the expectation is for another meaningful drop in the June print, mainly due to the base effects. But this could actually take us underneath 4%, potentially as low as 3.5%. And I think if we start to see that, then investors may start to capitulate on their bearish view and start to think about the economy in a very different context, one in which the strength of consumer actually can return and inflect us higher as an economy. 
That also has ramifications for the Fed. And the Fed, as many investors may already know, has been a key part of the bear case with the thought process and their ability to fight inflation. They've actually had to raise rates in the most aggressive rate hike cycle that we've seen in 40 plus years. And if we start to see the disinflation trend continue to meaningfully accelerate to the downside as we anticipate, then the Fed is most likely paused not only in June, but potentially for the rest of the year. That's part of the bull case. The bear case, however, comes from the fact that the consumer is so strong that this could keep inflation sticky. And if those base effects, as we alluded to earlier, start to inflect inflation higher, you could see the Fed pause and then return. That's really interesting. Thank you so much. And then you mentioned that the other sort of tenet of the bull case is the strength of the consumer and the corporate balance sheets. So can you go through both of those? Certainly. So on the consumer, I think the first thing to kind of realize is that this is the first recession in U.S. history where you saw net worth increase rather than decrease. So in 2008, for example, net worth fell by $8 trillion. In 2020, you saw net worth increase by $13.5 trillion. When you start to think about other concepts such as you know capital gains and how this can impact the consumer cash pile, so in 2020, you had more than $2 trillion in realized capital gains. And while the tax rate is not uniform there, it does range from about 10% to 37%. And that still is a meaningful amount of money that's hit checkings and savings accounts. And so with that in mind, we actually look at some of the Fed data, something called the Z1, which is going to update again in early June. And in that, we've seen that at the end of last year, that the checking accounts across the United States had more than $5 trillion in cash. Now, the reference point for U.S. history is the highest previous mark was $1.7 trillion. So that's obviously a meaningful increase in what you've seen there. And this kind of leads into some of the consumer strength that we've seen. Now, shifting gears and thinking about corporate balance sheets. So I'll start with high yield. And I start there because these are the riskiest companies that we have. Now, from last year through this year, you're going to see about 18% of market cap upgraded to investment grade, i.e. credit quality is approved enough that they're no longer considered risky companies. Now, I've heard a lot about you know, the potential for companies to be shut out of capital markets. And that is certainly a concern. But when I look at high yield companies, 84% of existing high yield issuers do not actually have to refinance or come back to the market until 2025. So while it is a risk, it's not an imminent risk. So Earnings is really the final piece to this puzzle. And the most recent earnings quarter that we saw, you saw top line revenue growth increase by about three or 4%. Now, earnings growth, while it was negative, it actually beat expectations by about 50%. And when the final piece to this is also going to be margins. And with margins, I would say that if you strip out energy and finance companies, that margins actually increase on a quarter over quarter basis, giving some thought that the earnings recession that is expected we may have already seen it in Q4 of last year. That's really helpful. Thank you, Drew. So lots of positives you're highlighting there, which are presumably helping explain market strength that we've seen year to date and since October last year, and perhaps leading to a more positive view from your side. But we'll get to that later. Before we get to that, your point on the health of consumer balance sheets. I want to pick up on that because it's actually an area that I was discussing earlier this week with Anna Stepnitska. That was a podcast that you will have heard a few days ago. Anna was more cautious around the macro economy from here. Her point was, even if the consumer does have excess cash available, it is likely to be saved. It's likely not to be spent. And she called it precautionary savings. So Drew, what's your take on that? Absolutely. So I do agree that the direction for the consumer is credit quality deterioration. Where I may disagree with her is the pace at which that happens. So like two things that I would kind of consider is first, if you look at 
cash levels today versus where they were in 2019, across every income bracket, they're at least 40% higher. And historically, what you see with the U.S. consumer, which is tends to be a levered consumer, does not tend to stop spending until you see unemployment spike pretty aggressively. And we're in an environment where there are 1.6 jobs available for every unemployed person that exists in the United States. And most of the layoffs that we've seen happen have happened in the tech industry. And even though companies that have laid off still have more employees today than they did in 2019. That's not to say that layoffs cannot accelerate from here, but really, I think the key metric to watch is going to be non-farm payrolls. And the most recent print was still over 250,000 jobs being added. At that pace, which is well off its highs from a year ago of about 750,000 people, it's still above where it is. A historical average is about 200,000. So I think really what you want to watch is once that kind of gets under 100,000, that typically is the level that's associated with about a 2% inflation rate sustainably. But really, recession rates are going to be closer to like zero jobs or even negative prints. So that's the key metric for me. And in Until we kind of get closer to those levels, I'm probably going to be a little bit less concerned about the spending holding up than Anna is. Very helpful. Thank you, Drew. So, so far, you've really been focusing on the bullish narratives for markets, which have helped explain, let's say, market strength this year. You've talked about inflation falling for the last 12 straight months. You've talked about the Fed potentially stopping its hiking cycle for the time being, at least. You've talked about strength of consumer balance sheets. You've spoken about strength of corporate balance sheets and earnings so far. So that's all really fascinating. I guess, can we turn now to headwinds that the markets now face. And I think, as we all alluded to earlier, these have been coming up a lot in our client conversations. In the near term, the debt ceiling, and in the medium term, the recession potential in the US. And possibly, as you mentioned, Drew, the idea that inflation is actually a bit more persistent and the Fed might need to continue its hiking cycle at some stage. So, Drew, what's your take on all of these market headwinds? Absolutely. So without a doubt, the debt ceiling is the most acute near-term risk. And you've seen this royal bond market. So if you look at shorter dated bonds, treasury bills, they have increased to the highest levels effectively in our lifetimes, which basically means that lending costs are going higher for all parties that use this. And so that does become a headwind to the economy. And even though if we get the situation adjudicated, it's really the pace at which that normalizes. Does this actually impact things such as short-term funding markets or even long-term funding markets? Now, to add to this, you still have a Fed that is not committed to being paused forever. And in the most recent Fed minutes, you saw about half the governors suggesting that they still want to hike from here because inflation, specifically core inflation. And so when I say core inflation, what I'm talking about is all the things except for energy prices and food prices continues to remain elevated and accelerating higher. If that remains the case, it seems likely that once we get past the debt ceiling, the Fed might turn back on their tightening cycle. And then as you kind of see the Fed funds rate go higher, then some of the issues that we have with banks, specifically deposit flight, might continue to accelerate. And then that could go parabolic, again, exacerbating the credit conditions that I spoke about before. Thank you, Drew. So it sounds like in the medium term, you're actually quite concerned, or at least you're very aware of concerns in both the inflation persistence side and what that means for the Fed and or the growth side. Absolutely. Which is really interesting. And and by the way, quite consistent with the conversation I had with Anna earlier this week. But putting it all together in terms of your tactical view on markets today, thinking about all the bullish arguments you were giving earlier, what is your take? 
my take is still tactically bullish. And so I, here's how I'm thinking about that is, as you see, PMIs and ISM data have inflected higher. CPI likely prints lower. Fed paused in June. That's kind of a formula for stocks higher and potentially led by cyclicals. So, John, can we turn to you now then? So, Drew was obviously articulating at the beginning of this conversation some of the bullish narratives for stocks, whether it's inflation falling, Fed potentially pausing, strength of consumer and corporate balance sheets, strength of earnings so far. And and as we mentioned, and as we all know, US markets have indeed rallied this year and since October last year. So, John, if you look at investor positioning, does it reflect this bullishness? And how much would you argue investors have bought into the year-to-date rally so far? That's a great question. So I would say to the point at the start, the sentiment from clients, as you alluded to, still seems quite bearish. But given how much markets have rallied, I think there have been a lot of investors who have been sort of forced into the market and have become a lot more neutral in their overall positioning. So if I think about the different types of investors that we track, hedge funds, for example, they've increased their net leverage amongst the equity long short funds from basically five-year lows to about the 40th percentile on a five-year basis more recently. Retail investors did buy a little bit at the start of this year, but have actually remained still sellers in the past few months. Asset managers, we think, are pretty neutral. And then CTAs are arguably a bit positive in U.S. equity markets, but still much more bullish in Europe and Japan. So overall, it's definitely been a little bit more positive or definitely more neutral. But as I mentioned, probably more reluctantly so than actually buying into the bullish argument in a more direct or meaningful manner. And so to the extent that investors have been reluctantly buying into markets, which pockets have really seen that greatest net buying? So I think, you know, not surprisingly, megacap tech has been probably the star of the show, if you will, uh, in the last few months, and I would say in particular in March. So when we had the regional banking crisis, we saw hedge funds buy megacap tech in one of the largest amounts that we've seen in the past few years in that one month period. And while they didn't continue to buy immediately in April and actually saw a little bit into strength, they did pick up their buying earlier this month. The other thing I would say is when we look at flows across hedge funds, ETFs, and retail investors in the U.S., it's really been the defensive sectors that have seen the most buying. So utilities, staples, and healthcare are the three most bought sectors in the past three months. And that gives you an idea of where investors feel comfortable adding risk to this market, which is still things that could be defensible or have both properties of offense and defense like people are looking at Medicap Tech for. Thank you. And so would you characterize this year's market rally as a pain trade? Definitely a pain trade for for many investors who came into the year thinking the markets were about to go much lower, for sure. Thank you. That's really clear, especially the fact that they've been buying into these more defensive assets. So putting it together then, John, where would you say this leaves positioning today? So one way we track this is via our tactical positioning monitor, where we aggregate positioning across hedge funds, retail, asset managers, CTAs, and a few other things. And this metric was basically at a decade low in September of last year at about one and a half standard deviations below average. It is more recently only about a half standard deviation below average, which gives you an idea of how much more neutral investors are. So I would say it is definitely a bit more neutral, but still not positive. 
That's really helpful. Thank you. So if we go back to the bearish scenarios that Drew and I were going through, so debt ceiling in the near term, let's hope, recession and potentially inflation persistence, how much do you think these scenarios are priced in at this stage? So at a macro level, it's hard to argue given indices are around 12-ish month highs and the position, as I mentioned, is closer than neutral than very bearish, that a large amount of risk is being priced in. I think part of this too is the fact that given performance hasn't been that positive for a lot of investors this year, there's simply not a lot of willingness to spend premium on protection. And that's been one of the themes from the derivative side. But if you look at more of the micro data and the sector levels, the positioning actually speaks to a fairly bearish or recessionary concern-led sort of makeup. And by this, I mean, if you look at what happened in March, in March, a lot of the very strong recessionary trades, such as retail, travel and leisure, banks, energy, they were all hit pretty significantly in terms of the market performance and also saw quite a bit of selling. And the selling hasn't really flipped to buying yet. So I think the key thing here is that there was a lot of downside and concern that was priced in at a more rotational perspective. And more recently, even though some of those trades have started to work a bit better, we aren't seeing clients willing to back that. So it still remains much heavier towards defensives than it is cyclicals. Thank you. So in many ways, the flows sound pretty logical given the backdrop of you know, probability of a US recession in the medium term. So, John, are there any key dislocations that you would highlight leading to any key views from your side? So that's a great question. I think at the moment, at a macro level, it's hard to argue that there is one big skew here or there. But at a more micro level, if you look at something like momentum in the US, it's performed very well as a factor and it's become correlated with this whole cyclicals defensive trade. And the flows that we've seen from the hedge fund side have been very positive in the last two to four weeks. So the thing that looks a bit dislocated is the potential for a rally to continue and to be led by cyclicals, which in our view from the positioning lens would probably be a bigger pain trade than many other versions of this. That's a great point. And didn't we see a sharp momentum unwind on Wednesday this week, for example? Haven't we seen sort of small signs, let's say, that this could be beginning to play out? There have been a few days over the past week where we started to see this, but it's unclear how much it's really picking up yet. And still, I think, to be determined, given at least tech on the positive side in the US is still performing pretty well and will likely minimize how much momentum sells off if it continues to do well. Yeah, makes sense. So. If I attempt to summarise views then from the two of you, Drew and John, Drew, in the near term, at least, you're pretty bullish US stocks and you're highlighting the fact that inflation headline CPI has fallen for the last 12 straight months and the next print, which is in June, could well fall significantly again because, of course, base effects remain positive right now. And Drew, you're also highlighting the fact that consumer and corporate balance sheets are both pretty strong right now. We haven't yet seen evidence of an earnings recession, for example. So in the very near term, you're quite bullish, albeit you have highlighted many reasons to have more concern in the medium term, if I understand correctly. Absolutely. And then, John, I think from a positioning backdrop, it sounds like you are aligned with Drew that positioning at an aggregate level is slightly light. And therefore, at the margin, this could support a, a move higher in US equities, perhaps led by cyclicals. Is that right? That's very fair. 
great. And I guess if we try and combine that with views from the wider team, we heard from Krupa, I think about a week ago, where she was more bearish in the near term on China and on Europe, more bullish on Japan, interestingly. So when we put that together, really, there's more of an overweight in US versus Europe for the time being when we look at the very tactical views from our team, albeit we're all aware of the medium term risks around the economy. Is that fair? Absolutely. So before we go, Drew, John, one final question. Which catalyst will you be watching most closely? And of course, we're a data-driven team. And when the facts change, we really need to let those change or at least feed into our views. So Drew, let's start with you. What are you watching? So the first thing I'll watch is going to be the debt ceiling. So assuming that we get this adjudicated within the next seven to 10 days, then I think we immediately have to look at the macro data. So the first thing I'll watch is going to be ISM on June 1st. Next, I'll look at the CPI number on June 13th. And then lastly, the Fed on June 14th. And if we kind of see how those all play out, that could be supportive of the bull case of which we illustrated before. But as you mentioned, if we're wrong about the, these and the data comes out counter to, to what our hypothesis is, then we need to readjust as well. Great. And just to clarify, when you say if we see them play out on the bullish side, you're assuming ISM higher, CPI meaningfully lower, Fed pause. Is that right? Absolutely. Perfect. Great. And then, John, on to you. What are you going to be watching? So I'm really going to be watching for any signs where the pendulum is swinging strongly in one direction or the other from a positioning standpoint. And I think just to give an idea of what I'd be looking for, if I think back to mid-March, even prior to the banking crisis unfolding, we thought positioning was getting very, very negative based on a number of metrics we were looking at. And I think that's part of the reason why equity markets didn't fall nearly as much as people would have expected them to in that period. By contrast, I think given we're, we've been moving a bit more positively and there's been some upward momentum, I'm more kind of watching for a similar scenario to play out like we saw in late Jan, early February, where there was material short covering, retail were buying a lot of calls, and overall the positioning was getting very positive in a very short period of time. That usually is a bit of a warning sign. And assuming we still have some volatility in this market and there's still some ranginess, that'd be something I'd be a little bit wary of. Thank you so much, Drew and John. That was a really interesting discussion. It's so brilliant to be here in person together this week, and particularly in the context of the many investor meetings you've been having recently. It's a really great time, I think, to be sitting down and having this discussion. And there's certainly a lot we've got to wait for in terms of catalysts coming up. So thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. It's been great having this conversation. So thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you have feedback or questions, please do get in touch with us via our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates. Together, J.P. Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument.
This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. JP Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of JP Morgan.